This is West Virginia Morning. I'm Teresa Wills. A famous home designed by Frank Lloyd Wright just over the state line in Pennsylvania serves as the inspiration for a children's book written by two West Virginia authors. We knew the house. We both visited it and we both loved it. And I don't know who brought up that they had just visited Falling Water, but then the other one said, well, I had too. That story and more coming up this West Virginia Morning. Support for West Virginia Morning is proudly provided by Luke Frazier. A federal judge has ruled against Union Carbide, ordering the company to pay for the cleanup of a hazardous material site in South Charleston. Judge John T. Copenhaver, Jr. of the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of West Virginia decided Union Carbide is responsible for the cleanup of the Philmont site. The company dumped numerous hazardous substances there from the 1950s to the 1980s. Copenhaver ruled the Philmont site was an illegal open dump. He said Union Carbide also violated the federal clean Water Act for storm water runoff from an adjacent rail yard it owns. Copenhaver's ruling favors the Cortland Company, which first sued Union Carbide in 2018 over contamination of its property. The site is adjacent to Davis Creek, a tributary of the Canal River. It is across Davis Creek from where the West Virginia Division of Highways is performing major construction on the Jefferson Road interchange. A crowd of several hundred people turned out for a family-friendly rally at Coonskin Park Sunday. The event was organized by the group Save Coonskin Park in a show of public opposition to West Virginia International Jaeger Airport's proposed runway expansion plan. Speakers included family members of Alice Knight, the artist and wildlife photographer who the Alice Knight Memorial Trail was named after following her death in 2008. If approved, the park would lose 400 acres for a valley fill area to make room for an extension to the runway and parallel taxiway. The FAA is considering alternative ways to extend the runway. The agency recently pledged a more than $2 million grant to Jaeger Airport for the third phase of its environmental impact study. Save Coonskin Park organizers recently submitted more than 11,000 signatures to the FAA in a show of opposition to the runway extension. The Allegheny Front, based in Pittsburgh, is a public radio program that reports on environmental issues in the region. Here's their latest story about poison ivy and how it's reacting to climate change. A new study uses museum specimens to find out how the leaves of poison ivy in Pennsylvania have changed with the increased carbon dioxide in the atmosphere that's fueling climate change. This is the Allegheny Front Environment Updates. I'm Carol Holsapple. In our study, we looked at poison ivy, toxicodendron. I will just pull a bunch of specimens for us to look at. 
Mason Heberling, associate curator of botany at the Carnegie Museum of Natural History, pulls a stack of folders out of a cabinet with a green Mr. Yuck sticker on it. The museum's herbarium has 133 dried poison ivy specimens from Pennsylvania, dating from 1838 to the 2010s. This one's really cool. It's from uh, June 1884, 18th Ward, Pittsburgh, collected by John Schaefer. It's super old. Some are red and others have berries, but they all have those infamous leaves of three. Heberling says the study using these specimens was pioneered by then-Chatham undergraduate Alyssa McCormick, a research intern. It's based on a pair of influential studies from the early 2000s, one where poison ivy was grown indoors with high and regular carbon dioxide levels, and another where a forest plot was artificially enriched with carbon dioxide. The studies showed poison ivy could be a winner when it comes to climate change, growing larger leaves with more CO2 and becoming more toxic to people. But those were experimental studies. Heberling and McCormick wondered about an observational one. We kind of stared at the specimens for a really long time to kind of think, what can we measure from them? They measured stomatal density, or the number of stomata or pores on the leaves, which is how plants take in carbon dioxide for photosynthesis and release oxygen and water. We do that in this really fancy way. Um, you put a little bit of nail polish on, a, on the dried leaf, let the nail polish dry on the leaf, and then you can pull off the nail polish and it makes kind of a cast of the underside of the leaf um, without damaging the specimen. Heberling says the amount of stomata that some plant species make correlates with carbon dioxide. So they wanted to know if poison ivy adjusted its stomatal density with more carbon dioxide. And they had another question. Do all plants do this or is this a special poison ivy thing? So they looked at another woody vine, Virginia creeper, and staghorn and poison sumac, both related to poison ivy, but trees, not vines. They also looked at leaf size and sent small samples of the leaves away for analysis to measure different forms of carbon in them. The earliest specimens in the study are from around 1840, when atmospheric carbon dioxide was about 280 parts per million. And today we're well over 400. They found that unlike the two tree species, poison ivy and Virginia creeper decreased their stomatal density with increased carbon dioxide over the last 200 years, which means that per unit area, fewer stomata are present. But the leaves of the vines tended to be larger, as in the previous studies. So if the leaf area is larger without increasing the number of pores, the plants might benefit from increased light capture for photosynthesis without losing as much water. They don't really know. Heberling says a big takeaway from the study is that poison ivy does seem to be doing better with climate change and specifically more CO2 in the atmosphere, but so are other vines. I hear a lot of people talking about vines taking over their yard, not only poison ivy, but other you know wild grapes and other things. And so this study also kind of lends to that, that there is um, definitely a carbon dioxide enrichment story here in, in vines. The museum study didn't measure poison ivy's toxicity, the production of the oily urushiol that gives many of us an itch rash. But Heberling says more studies using the herbarium collection are in the works. The new CO2 study is published in the September issue of the peer-reviewed American Journal of Botany. There's more, including photographs of the specimens, at alleghenyfront.org. That's the Allegheny Front Environment Update. I'm Carol Holsapple. The Allegheny Front is based in Pittsburgh and reports on regional environmental news. This is West Virginia Morning. I'm Teresa Wills. It's 751. 
Areas of fog this morning becoming mostly sunny today. Highs in the 70s and 80s. Clear tonight with lows in the 50s. Tomorrow, sunshine with highs in the 70s and 80s. Support for WVPB is provided by Sinesta Suites in Charleston, an extended stay hotel located near the airport, downtown, and state capital. More at Sinesta.com. A home built directly into the mountains, just over the state line in Pennsylvania, has become one of the most famous houses in the world. It's known as Falling Water and was designed by the master architect Frank Lloyd Wright. Two West Virginia authors wrote a children's book about the house, and West Virginia Public Broadcasting is featuring the story in our new Mountain Readers Become Leaders program. It's an effort designed to celebrate and foster a love of reading in children across West Virginia. The program launches today. As Eric Douglas reports, the authors went through several revisions before determining the central character was, in fact, the house. The book Falling Water, the building of Frank Lloyd Wright's masterpiece, tells the story of how Wright's career was nearly done. There was even a rumor going around that he was dead. But then Edgar Kaufman, of Kaufman Department Store fame, asked him to build him a home. The story is, of course, about more than building a house. It's about creativity and imagination. Those are the storylines that make it perfect for a children's book. Anna Egan Smucker and Mark Harshman knew they wanted to tell the story, but it took them several tries to land on just how to tell it. I recall, Anna, we were just chatting and we discovered that we both had this passion for uh, the house known as Falling Water. Uh, we came at it from different angles, but we shared this. We knew the house. We would both visited it, and we both loved it. That was Harshman. He's also the state's poet laureate. Smucker felt the same way. And we just happened to be talking on the phone one day, and I don't know who brought up that they had just visited Falling Water, but then the other one said, well, I had too. And so I thought, is that a possibility for a book? And if so, shall we try to work on one together? This was Smucker and Harshman's first collaboration, although they worked in the same circles for a long time. There were some parallels between what they did and the work between Wright and Kaufman. They described three previous tries before they found the perfect way to tell this story. I don't know who wrote the very, very first draft, but whoever it was would have written it and sent it by uh, electronic um, email to the other one. Um, let's say Anna wrote the first draft, she sent it to me, and I would tweak whatever she had written, uh, add some things, maybe subtract some things, send it back to her. And we must have exchanged easily 50 or 60 versions. And they were dramatic differences. I'll let Anna talk a little about that. Yes, the first story, we had created a fictional character, Daniel, whose father is employed as one of the workers to build falling water. And it got so confusing 
that we just had to throw that story away, even though we'd worked on it for a while. So then we created another fictional character, Amelia, whose father also worked at Falling Water, but Amelia dreamed of flying. And it's funny because the house that flies still flew. <laughs> part of that story is in this third story that is the book Falling Water. So finally, we realized that the main character was the house. In the case of Wright and Kaufman, Wright spent nearly a year visiting the proposed construction site for the house before he even started to draw up plans. Well, uh, I think Frank Lloyd Wright's whole thing was a building of any sort should look as if it had grown right out of the ground that it was situated on. And it does seem like his very first visit to Bear Run, he looked at that outcropping. And it's almost seen, it almost seems like right away he knew that was the heart of the house. And it turned out that that rock is the hearth of the house. It is important to, uh, to work hard, as I'm quite sure Wright did throughout his career, but also important to uh, leave space for the dreaming time. More than 400 copies of the book Falling Water, the building of Frank Lloyd Wright's masterpiece, have been sent around the state, and volunteers are reading it in classrooms in every county in West Virginia this week. An estimated number of children who will hear the story is set at 18,000. ZMM Architects and Engineers made that possible by purchasing the books for the project. Adam Crayson is one of the principals of the firm. He said just about anyone with an interest can become an architect. It's a mixture of hard work and creativity. When I graduated from high school, I had an interest in art and I had an interest in math. And for some reason, that combination leads people to say, you should be an architect or an engineer. Crayson says he admires Wright for his ability to adapt his work and to deliver what his clients wanted. His career was very interesting in that he was able to design buildings not only throughout the country but throughout the world. And one thing I appreciate about Frank Lloyd Wright is, although he's associated very often with the prairie style of house um, from his early career, he, there was no defined style. When we talk about an architect uh, really delivering the vision of his client, I mean, uh, falling water has nothing to do with the Guggenheim. And if you look at his prairie style houses or the work he did in Japan, Th there might be some similarities, but, but in every case, he really made an effort to design what his client wanted, and that's what I really appreciate about Frank Lloyd Wright. Classrooms or libraries that want to listen to the story can watch members of the West Virginia Public Broadcasting staff read Falling Water, the building of Frank Lloyd Wright's masterpiece, on our website at wvpublic.org. For West Virginia Public Broadcasting, I'm Eric Douglas in Charleston. West Virginia Morning is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting, which is solely responsible for its content. You can keep up with the latest West Virginia news throughout the day on our website, wvpublic.org. Support for our news bureaus comes from Shepherd University. West Virginia Morning is produced with help from Bill Lynch, Brianna Heaney, Caroline McGregor, Chris Schultz, Curtis Tate, Emily Rice, Eric Douglas, Liz McCormick, and Randy Yowie. Caroline McGregor is our assistant news director, and she produced today's show. I'm your host, Teresa Wills. This is West Virginia Morning.